Welcome to the Slim and Satisfied podcast. I'm your host, Daphna Chazen. Over the past decade, I've helped hundreds of women stop dieting and start living a life that is truly healthy, enjoyable, and delicious. If you've struggled with weight and have yet to find the right solution to your health concerns, you're in the right place. Each week, I'm going to share my best tips, tricks, and strategies to eating well without ever feeling confined by diet rules or short-term fixes. Join me as I walk you through my science-based, practical tips that will transform your habits for good. My down-to-earth, no-nonsense approach is going to get you the results you've been craving all along. So, are you ready? Let's get started. there, Daphna here. I hope you're having a great week. Thanks for joining in today and welcome to episode three. I've been thinking about today's episode for at least the past three to four years. I'm not even kidding. It's been brewing inside of me and the more clients I saw, the more I realized I have to talk about this because I want people to know something really important about weight loss. And that is that weight loss is not about willpower. I want to stop talking, I want to stop hearing about willpower, and I want people to stop feeling bad about not being able to lose weight because they think they're too weak or they think that they don't have enough self-discipline. It really is not about that. We all think that we can't lose weight since we're not strong enough, we have no willpower, we have no self-control. Oh, and that friend of ours, that healthy friend that's really thin, She does. She does have willpower. And that's why she's more successful than me. That's why she's able to get it done right. And I'm not. That's all wrong, ladies. So I really think that willpower is one of the biggest myths in weight loss. And today we're going to bust it once and for all. But first, let's take a moment to define what willpower really is. So I looked in the dictionary and this is the definition that appears there. And it says, Willpower is control of one's impulses and actions, and it says self-control next to it. So what does this mean? I do think that we all have a certain amount of willpower that we're born with. So we all have a certain threshold of how well we can control ourselves, how well we can control our impulses and actions and desires. But the reason that I don't like to talk about willpower for weight loss is that It's a finite resource. We only have so much of it. And every time we use it, it goes down. So it's kind of like your phone battery. If you have an iPhone or whatever other phone, the more you use it, the more quickly it gets depleted. One of the most famous studies about willpower really demonstrated this very well. It's from 1996. So it's not a new study, but it's definitely profound. And I really like the way that they set up this study. So what they did is they took 67 participants and they placed them in a room that smelled like freshly baked chocolate cookies. I know, torture. And they were presented with the cookies as well as other chocolate flavored confections and treats and things like that. While some of the people in the study did get to indulge and eat the cookies and chocolates, the subjects that were really studied in this experiment were asked to not eat the cookies, but eat radishes instead. How cruel is that? So they gave them the radishes and they told them that 
after they finished eating them, they're going to have to do another task. So half the group ate the cookies, half the group ate the vegetables, and then they gave them a puzzle to solve. So each group had to solve this persistence taste testing puzzle. It was a puzzle that requires some uh, focus, some attention, some self-discipline in order to solve it. And what they saw was that the people who ate the radishes didn't really try as hard. They made less attempts and spent less than half the time trying to solve the puzzle compared to the other people who were happy and eating the cookies, okay? So the people who ate the cookies were better able to stay with the puzzle and really see it through and solve it. And the ones that had to resist the sweets and force themselves to eat vegetables could not not find the willpower to fully engage in another hard task. So they were already too tired, their willpower already was mildly depleted, and they saw that they gave up more quickly. And when you think about the number of decisions that we need to make around food in a day, it really can explain why willpower is not that valuable of a skill to develop. In addition to being finite, it's also arbitrary. So we can't really tell how much willpower we have when we wake up in the morning, right? There's no meter or gauge that's going to tell us, oh, right, your tank is 100% full today. You can walk by any donut and be fine, right? That's not how it works. When we wake up in the morning or when we're looking to see how much willpower I have left midday, there's really nowhere I can tell. There is nowhere I can check. There is no way I can know. There are also studies that show that willpower is affected by different biological processes. So for example, there are research studies that show that self-control is reduced when we experience PMS, when we are in premenstrual syndrome. So isn't this when many women need it the most, right? Isn't that when we need willpower the most because we have the most intense cravings? So these are all reasons that you can see why relying on willpower for weight loss is really a losing game. It's not a good strategy because we're going to be counting on something that, first of all, weakens as we use it, right? It goes down, it gets depleted, it decreases, and then we're not even sure how much of it we have at any given point of the day. So this is definitely not a reliable resource that we can count on in order to successfully lose weight long-term. And that's really not my idea of a reliable success strategy for my smart clients. My clients are way smarter than just relying on weight loss. The other reason I say that being able to use willpower to stick with a strict diet is not an accomplishment in my eyes is because a diet that requires constant willpower and high levels of it and really forces you to act against your desires most of the time is likely not the right one for you and it's likely not going to serve you in the long run. That diet may very well produce weight loss and it may very well feel right for you initially, but if it's over time been exhausting your willpower, it's exhausting other resources like your time and effort and focus, and it's really leaving you depleted and deprived, it's only a matter of time before your old habits resurface and erase all that progress. 
And many of you have been on a strict diet, not once and not twice, many, many times in the past. So if you've experienced this, you likely know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there firsthand. You know exactly what it feels like to be kind of like on a hamster wheel in your diet. You're constantly running. You're constantly chasing it. But progress is very slow, and it's something that's mentally very difficult to keep up. Have you ever noticed that right around the time, if you're following a diet, right around the time that your weight plateaus and you're no longer seeing weight loss week by week is also the time that you feel a little tired and worn out by that diet plan? That's probably a sign that your willpower is in the red, right? There is less than 10% remaining and you're feeling it in your behaviors. You're feeling it in your inability to really stick with the restrictions that the diet is imposing on you. There's typically a cycle that we go through when we diet that I call the fear, failure, fatigue cycle, or the triple F cycle. And I'm going to include an image of it below in the show notes because I'd like you to see it visually. But let me explain what it means because it shows how willpower is totally irrelevant for weight loss. So the triple F cycle starts with weight gain. Whatever the reason is that someone gains weight, it really doesn't matter here. You may have a lifelong issue with weight, or you may have experienced a rough patch that threw you off track, or maybe you have PCOS or a thyroid condition or another medical problem that's making it harder for you to keep weight under control. So your desire is to lose weight, and that's going to be at the top of the cycle. The next thing we see is frustration. Whenever someone deals with weight issues, there's usually some level of frustration that's building over time and really mounting right before they take action. So we may be feeling a little uncomfortable, you know, feeling uncomfortable in your own body, in your own skin is not uncommon when people have weight issues. Clothes may not be fitting right, my confidence may be declining, and maybe I'm even worried about health conditions and certain disease risk, while at the same time, I'm developing this anger toward myself that's really leaving me very prone to taking that impulsive quick action, which is the next phase. In the quick action phase, what we see, and I see this often with my clients, is that We're very exposed emotionally, and when we act emotionally, when we act based on our feelings, we're by definition not acting rationally because our emotional brain is taken over. So we're highly focused on something that my rational brain may know full well is not going to work for me or help me one bit. So this could be another diet or another crash or some sort of a trend or fad that I've already followed in the past, it did not work for me, but my frustration is so high, my level of anger and self-loathing sometimes is so high that I'm prone to taking quick action no matter what it is. So in this situation, we're highly focused on this one thing that we want to do just to get some solution going, just to get some sort of relief. And I may know that it's not going to work, but I do it anyway because my primitive brain has now taken over my decision-making process. 
So the results here are almost always starting a new weight loss program or maybe even worse, trying to be super restrictive on my own without any thought out plan or strategy because my judgment is so impaired. So I may know that what I'm about to do will likely be very short-lived or produce results that are not meaningful since I've done that before. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway since I'm so highly frustrated and my emotional brain is now dictating my actions and my decisions. Next in this cycle, so let's recap real quick. We have weight gain. We have frustration. We just covered quick action. Next thing is blood, sweat, and tears. And I call this the blood, sweat, and tears of dieting. So I start on this weight loss plan and I'm trying so very hard to stick with it. This is um, a very common pattern. And I'm putting in a huge investment of time, effort, maybe even money. And let me tell you a secret right here. The higher the intensity of effort in this phase, the shorter it is. Meaning if the plan I'm following is a lot different than my normal routine, I need to work at it pretty hard, and that's oftentimes limiting the amount of time I can keep this going for. Which brings me to the next phase, which is physical and mental fatigue. So I've put in a lot of effort, and now I'm tired. This one is pretty self-explanatory. You're just done. You're not able to keep up with the meal prepping, the workouts, or you're just not able to show up for your family or at work or in your community and personal life as your best self because you're so wrapped up in this diet and it's all consuming. Not a good situation, but we've all been there multiple times and we keep feeding this cycle over and over again. What's interesting, which transitions into the next and last phase of the feel fear failure fatigue cycle, is that on the other side of physical and mental fatigue from dieting, there's more weight gain. This could be for a few reasons, and I won't go into detail about them here since that's a whole other discussion, but when we see people putting a lot of effort into a diet and maybe they follow it for three, four, six weeks, maybe even longer than that but then they fall off and they regain more than they've lost. There could be several reasons why this happens. Some of them are physiological and some of them are more on the mental, emotional, or psychological end of things. From a physiological perspective, there are a few things that happen when someone goes on a diet and then goes back to what they were doing before. And the reason that we see sometimes rapid shifts is often related to fluid retention. So you could lose and regain tremendous amounts of water weight within a pretty short period of time. And whenever someone's seeing that weight is coming back on, they're so much more prone to just throwing in the towel and going all out back to their old habits, which is clearly going to put more weight on. The other thing that could be happening is if you followed a crash diet or something that's highly restrictive, your metabolism may have adjusted down. So we've all heard of metabolism being slow. This doesn't happen very frequently, but it can. And the more times someone follows a diet like that, the more they cycle through the fear, failure, fatigue cycle, 
the lower and slower their metabolism is going to be. On the mental side of things, there could be additional things going on, and both of the mental and physiological aspects could be overlapping here. And that's a lot of times why people regain much more than they have lost in a much shorter period of time after they come off a diet. So a couple of things that I commonly see on the more mental side of things is just overeating or even binging, mostly due to feeling negative about the experience that we've just had, and also making up for lost time by eating a lot of the forbidden food. So a lot of things could be going on here. At the center of this cycle, and please pay close attention here because this is important, is stress. And when I say stress, I'm referring mostly to increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Cortisol helps the body respond to stress and is so crucial in bringing the body back to normal after we experience a stressful event. So as you probably know, stress can manifest in a million different ways. There could be physiological stress, like from an illness or an accident or some sort of trauma to the body. There could obviously be mental stress just by having too many commitments, too many demands on our time and resources. And there could be internal stress, things that we think or things that we feel that put us in a situation of heightened emotions. So if you've ever talked to someone or had an unpleasant conversation and you felt stress, you probably felt it in your body, not just in your thoughts. Maybe your heart was racing a little bit. Maybe your palms were getting a little sweaty. Maybe your breathing got faster. These are all things that happen as a result of our body's response to stress. And cortisol plays a huge role in that response. The biggest job that cortisol has is to actually calm us down, to bring the body back down to normal by changing our blood sugar levels, changing our blood pressure, and helping with the function of our immune system just so that everything goes back to status quo. However, when we experience a lot of stress, prolonged periods of time with high cortisol levels, this can be really harmful for the body since it promotes more deposition of fat. So we're going to see more fat building up in the abdomen area in the midsection, we're going to see increased blood sugar levels, which could mean more cravings and less control of your appetite, as well as mood swings. And some studies show poor control of things like anxiety and depression with prolonged periods of elevated cortisol levels. So the reason I'm telling you all this is not to scare you, but to show you that this cycle has consequences and it can really be harmful to cycle through multiple diets, especially if they're highly restrictive or ones that you have a hard time adhering to because it's not only that you likely wouldn't lose weight or likely wouldn't keep weight off properly, there are farther reaching consequences as far as hormonal health and balance of certain hormones like cortisol as well as insulin that could be putting you at a worse position that before than before to losing weight in a sustainable way. So this is why I wanted to share the fear failure fatigue cycle. You can see a picture of it down below in the show notes and I'd like you to check it out because I think some parts of it or maybe even all of it could really resonate with you. 
In addition to all this, the main issue that I take with common diets and some of the restrictive regimens that we see today for weight loss is that they're not really teaching you how to respect your body. That means that you're eating more on some days, paying attention to how certain foods make you feel, and just listening and getting more in touch with your body and how you actually feel when you eat certain foods. These diets don't teach us how to feed our body the right types of foods in the right amounts. That means that we're choosing the most nutritious food for for the body most of the time, but also making space for treats here and there. That's what it would mean to teach you how to eat healthfully. Eating healthfully doesn't mean that you're not indulging in food. It actually means that you specifically make room for those things and those occasions. You're not always trying to avoid them. And most importantly, most diets really fall short to keep you satisfied and happy, not only by feeling great in your body, but also staying mentally strong and positive. So to me, if someone can't lose weight, it's not about willpower at all. It's more about finding the right plan that's going to fit into their life, will be sustainable, meaning we can see ourselves never stopping to follow it, and it doesn't confine us too much. It doesn't confine us into specific rules or restrictions that we have a hard time buying into and following long term. Being impatient, resentful, and frustrated with yourself, which is pretty much what happens to most people when they're on a diet, is never going to get you anywhere near your most desired goals. And that's what I want you to remember. So what should we do instead of looking for more willpower? What kind of things, what kind of resources could we use to stick with the diet, to make sure that the the regimen that we're following is the best one for us and it's actually propelling us forward without having to rely on something as arbitrary as willpower. If we really want to make changes that support our goals, I think we should all be leveraging something called brain plasticity in order to create behavior automation. Wait, what? Let me explain what all these fancy words really mean, okay? (laughs) Say, for example, that we're always eating too much sugar after dinner. We do this daily or most days of the week. For some of us, it may even feel like we're not choosing to do it. It just happens. This behavior happens so automatically since our brain is used to performing tasks that we repeat frequently. So stopping at the drive-thru or eating ice cream on the couch is an activity that is well-known, it's familiar to the brain, and there is no problem to perform it. Since I've been doing this repeatedly, I've been practicing this behavior over and over again, there's actually been a pathway of neurons in my brain created for this behavior specifically so that now it's being done without too much thought on my part. This process happens every time we learn something new, as long as we persist and stay consistent with it. So if we repeat something enough, the brain kind of learns to build that channel, that pathway that will now make this activity automated so that we reduce the amount of brain power, if you will, or energy that it takes to do this task. 
Think about learning to ride a bike or even something simple like ordering a coffee at Starbucks. Let's take that example. The first few times that I did it, I may have needed to be fully focused and pay attention. So initially, I paid attention very, very closely. I made sure that I'm following the right steps and I kept checking, checking that everything is going smoothly. That's my brain in action. So with the Starbucks example, let's say I go to a Starbucks now, I know that I need to say what I want. I need to say what size I wanted, and they're going to ask me for my name, right? Then I need to move to the side, to the area where the drinks come out, and listen out for my name. I didn't know all this when I first went there. So the first time I walked into a Starbucks, I probably needed to look around for a few extra seconds and kind of find my way and see what the process is and learn it. After repeating these actions so many times, I've been there more times than I'd like to admit, my brain created a new channel or pathway that mapped out the steps and ultimately helped me to complete the process more quickly, more efficiently, and with less thought and attention to each and every step. So I can now drive my car or order my coffee without spending too much brain power on the actions that these activities require. Good, right? Does that make sense? I hope so. So the same thing with your car. First few times, you sure need needed to pay more attention than you do now, right? When you were learning, when you were going from work to home or from a friend's house back to your house, the first few times, you had to follow a GPS, or you had to know where you're going. You had to pay attention. Otherwise, you would miss a turn. But now, it's on autopilot. You, Your brain has learned the way. So if I stopped going to Starbucks, or if your friend moved, you'll likely have to take a few minutes to get the process back up, back up and running in your brain in the right order and learn something new. You're going to have to form a new channel, a new pathway in your brain for that new activity. That's because the old pathway has not been used for a while and it's starting to get weakened. So if you now try to go back to a place you used to go to five years ago, the way that we, you know, how we say, we, I just forgot where it is or I don't remember how to go That's basically that pathway has become a little stale. It's just not working that well anymore. And it's weaker and less available for the brain to tap into. But it can rejuvenate itself, right? The more times you do it, it will build back up. So this is pretty cool stuff. And I think it's a very powerful concept to apply to weight loss. And I'm doing this with my clients right now, and it's working really well. So what does all this have to do with weight loss? Well, I can use the power of brain plasticity and the ability of the brain to actually change its structure based on which behaviors I perform to my advantage in weight loss, meaning I can follow a process that will build certain healthy behaviors into my brain, into the structure of my brain, and train my brain to seek seek out and favor those behaviors specifically in place of the ones that I want to eliminate. So let's see what that may look like because there's a process here that I'd like you to remember and it has five steps. 
I call this the Slim and Satisfied Brain Blueprint because I'm going to be referring back to it. It's that powerful and it works really, really well. So I definitely want you to pay attention here so that you can start implementing some of these steps into your day and see how powerful it can be. It really does work. The best part about it is that it eliminates the need to rely on willpower, which as we covered in the beginning is a finite resource and is very arbitrary. This is neither neither one of those things. This is something you can totally rely on. It's very predictable. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. So this is really beautiful stuff. The first step of the blueprint is called extraction. We want to identify the specific behavior we want to change, and I'd like you to only pick one. I know we can all find a million things that we want to change about ourselves, but I want you to find just one thing, and we want to dig deeper here than just saying, I want to lose weight, or I want to eat less, or I want to be less emotionally driven when I eat snacks, or whatever it may be. We need to find one behavior that's really hindering you and start there. A good place to start is with things that happen most of the time. So don't worry if you go out once or twice a month and you overeat a little bit or you have a special occasion coming up and there's going to be a buffet of desserts there. That does not matter. I want you to focus on things that are happening every single day Like I mentioned, emotional eating is a common one, nighttime eating, or maybe skipping meals that tends to backfire later in the day with overeating. So we extract one behavior from our day. The more specific and detailed you can be here, the better. The second step is called formation. This is where you're going to decide what is the new behavior that you want to practice. What would you like to replace the behavior in step one with? This could be existing or a newly created behavior. And you want to identify and clearly write down the new habit, but keep it realistic. It needs to be something that you can actually do. Step number three is called attachment. This is my favorite part because it's ultimately going to make this new habit stick. We're going to attach this behavior to something else that we're currently doing. And don't worry, we're going to go through an example right after we're done with the five steps so you can see exactly how to apply this. So we so far have extraction. We're going to pick the one behavior that we want to change. Formation, we're going to formulate a new behavior. Think about something that you want to start doing or that you want to do more of. Third step is attachment. We're going to attach this behavior to something else that we're already doing without a problem. Step number four is called repetition. We're going to stick with this behavior, practice it closely, and repeat it fully for at least two or three weeks, even when the going gets tough, even when it seems to not be working so well. This is where most women fall off. We don't allow enough time for this new pathway to form in the brain And we run back to old habits and to relying on willpower. And we've already talked about why that's the worst idea ever. So stay with it. You want to be focused here and just keep repeating this new behavior over and over again on a daily basis for at least two to three weeks. You can do this. You can do things even if they're hard. 
And the last and final step is validation. Once you've done this enough, validation of your healthy behavior should come naturally and show up in different areas as a result of this newly formed habit. So what do I mean by this? You want to formally recognize and appreciate things that are happening, positive changes that are happening as a result of you practicing this behavior, because this will further anchor it into your brain and into your daily routine. So obviously, you know, we can look at things like weight, keep track of pounds lost or inches lost, but I much prefer looking at something called non-scale victories. These are benefits and changes that do not show up on the scale because they're more related to quality of life. So think about improved energy levels, being able to play with your kids, being able to sleep better at night, being able to fit in your clothes more comfortably, having enhanced mood or reducing the need for medications, improved stamina, enhanced self-confidence. I mean, this list could go on and on. There are so many different things and they're going to be different for each and every person. But to me, when you start listing these benefits out or writing them down on paper and really verbalizing them and recognizing them, you get a shot of motivation. You get that second wind of just desire to keep these healthy behaviors going because you're reaping so many benefits out of them. I mean, what's more rewarding than that? Ultimately, you're not only going to reap these benefits, you're going to feel so great about yourself because you've accomplished something hard. You've conquered something that you've been struggling with for a really long time. And finally, you've been able to integrate it into your life in a very easy way that doesn't feel like hard work and doesn't require you to rely on willpower. This is the power, this is the strength, this is the magic of brain neuroplasticity. So let's recap the five steps that I'd like you to try to take so that you can really integrate these healthy behaviors into your day right now. Step number one is extraction. We're going to identify the habit we want to eliminate Step number two is formation. We're going to verbalize, we're going to identify, pinpoint the habit that I want to do more of or that I want to start doing if it's something I'm not currently doing. Number three is attachment. We're going to attach it to an existing behavior. Number four is repetition. Keep doing it. And number five is validation. Look at what kind of benefits you're getting out of repeating this behavior over and over again. And that list of benefit is just going to keep growing and growing and growing. Let me give you an example of how this process was applied recently with my client, Dana. She's someone who's been working with me on weight loss and managing PCOS for about a year. We've been able to modify many unhealthy habits that she was practicing before, and she's made amazing progress. She was able to lose 20 pounds. Her blood sugar levels have been so much better, and she just feels great overall. But a few months ago, things were moving a bit slowly for her, and she was losing steam. So as life got busier and more stressful, she really struggled to keep her eating, her healthy eating, on track. 
One of her biggest issues was breakfast. So she was would often rush to get to work in the morning, run out the door like many of us do. And in order to get breakfast, she would stop and Dunkin' Donuts every single day. She wouldn't buy donuts, but she'd get a breakfast wrap and hash browns and a sweet iced tea. She knew that this breakfast wasn't the best choice, but it was the convenient, quick, and easy choice. And it was really hard for her to break this habit since it was something that she did for months, if not years, and it became a part of her morning routine. But she was highly aware that it needed to change, and she was committed. She wanted to make a change here, and she said, let's work on this one thing. These are the types of clients that I absolutely love working with because they show up, they lean in for support, and they apply the things that we work on very, very consistently. So what we agreed to do was to use the blueprint I just shared with you So we did step number one, we extracted the specific behavior as the one that needs to be worked on, and that was stopping at Dunkin' Donuts every morning. The second thing that we did was formation. So a few weeks before we were talking about this, I shared a meal plan with her, and it had a breakfast option that really caught her eye. It was an overnight oats recipe, so she decided to give it a try, and she loved it. It not only tasted great, she said it. she felt so full and energetic after eating it that only then did she realize how sluggish her usual break, breakfast made her feel. So she was really excited about trying to have the oats most mornings. This, again, was the formation part. The newly formed behavior is a homemade breakfast that we've agreed upon that we knew was delicious, was serving her nutrition needs and her preferences, and we've specifically called out what recipe she's going to make and that this is something she's going to try to do at least three mornings out of her week. You want to keep it realistic. You want it to be attainable. So if she's currently doing something five days a week, it's highly unlikely that she'll be able to completely stop doing it and practice this new behavior right off the bat. So we start off easy with maybe two or three days a week. I think three is a good goal. So that's what we did. In the attachment part, and again, this is my favorite part, the plan here was to prepare it the night before because it's overnight oats and it also saves time in the morning. And she would do it right before she took her dog out for a walk. So it was important to do this before the walk since later on she'd probably have less energy and she'd be ready to move on with the other evening activities that she had to get done. So we decided that Preparing the meal before walking the dog will help condition her to always be thinking about her breakfast when it's walk time. However, in the beginning, it was hard. So it was another thing to remember to do. And remember, the goal here is to attach these two behaviors together. There was no way that she wouldn't take her dog out for a walk. That was a constant. That was something that was happening every single night at about the same time. That's the kind of behaviors that you want to latch onto and attach the new behavior to because it's already something that's happening. So in the beginning, it was a little tough for her. So the first week she did it one time. The next week she did it two times. And over the course of that first month, she had gotten so used to it that 
making the oats and grabbing um, the dog for a walk after that. Well, grabbing the dog, that sounded horrible. You wouldn't grab your dog, but you would make the, the oats and then take the dog out for a walk soon after is what I meant. That became an automated activity. In order for this to work, there could be nothing else that interferes with that flow of events. You make the oats, you take the dog. These are the two things that need to occur back to back in order for this behavior to stick. In fact, she liked doing it so much that the days that she didn't have it in the morning to grab and go to work, she missed it. She felt like something was missing. This didn't happen in week one. It happened in the second month, but she actually started craving her healthy breakfast when she didn't have it. And she could tell a difference in her energy levels on those days. That's when we knew that this behavior was ingrained and it was good and it was now on autopilot because she didn't have to think about it as much and it just became a part of her routine. So this is a perfect example of using brain plasticity, using the power of changing the structure of your brain to repeat certain behaviors until they become ingrained until they're incorporated into our routine and we don't need to put so much thought into it. So this is a really helpful, powerful tool and you can definitely apply this to healthy eating in a variety of ways. So I'd like you to take a look at the show notes below. I'm going to outline the five-step process. I'm also going to incorporate some detail about each and every step and Try to do this. Try to pick the one behavior that you want to focus on and implement this for the next couple weeks. I would absolutely love to hear how this went for you. So you can email me at info at daphnachazen.com and I'll be sure to reply to your email. So please share with me how you did. And if you've liked today's topic and you enjoyed this episode, I want you to check out my free Proven Path to Weight Loss Starter Kit. It's my five-step guide to sustainable weight loss that you're going to love. It shows you how to put meals together. It has a few success boosters that I use with my clients, and you're going to see all the different ways that I help people lose weight sustainably and abandon diets altogether. So go to www.daphnachazen.com forward slash free and check it out there. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Go make it a great week and I will see you again next week with a new episode. Bye for now.